Right. Now today we will have a bit of time at the end to ask any questions or make a comment or anything like that. If you've got a question, no question is a bad question, so feel free to just raise your hand at the end and ask away. Um, there, are some, there are some bits that are confusing and I'll mention those today as well, um, so you can look forward to that. Alright, well how about we pray and we'll get into this, um, uh, these two chapters, this lovely this vision that, uh, that John has. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, uh, we get to look at your word freely without persecution, without any strains and pressures we can gather together, and that's a, just a great blessing. Uh, thank you for that. Lord, focus our minds, help us to listen well, help me to be clear, and we, we pray, Lord, that as we hear this one clear message today, that we will walk away um, confident and assured of, um, of your victory and of... Um, of, of you reigning and ruling this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, people talk about uh, what's called the politics of fear. Now, I don't mean um, politicians that are scary, like Julie Bishop. She's scary, isn't she? Imagine meeting her and get on the wrong side of her. Very dangerous indeed. Now, what I mean is that their arguments use fear. Have you ever come across that idea? That is, that... that get people to be anxious enough about the future and then that they ha then they have no other course of action other than to vote for you only through their only through your policies will, will they be safe and secure that's the politics of fear it's pretty popular these days now in some cases fear of course is a good motivator isn't it but sadly when it comes to politics too often the things we are told to be scared about have very little factual basis. Um, now, I don't want to get too political. I get in trouble when I get too political. Uh, in fact, I very, very rarely get political, to be honest. I stay well clear. But let's, let's take a few moments to think about fear and the future, shall we? What, what is it that you fear? You think about those things. What is it that you fear? Uh, perhaps it might be exam results. So, for those who are studying, although perhaps due to your lack of study, you have every reason to be afraid. So that's okay. Um, Maybe it is a fear of failure. Maybe that's, that's what you have, a, a fear of failure. Those with children fear that our children will be safe, uh, even safe with God. We fear that. Or we fear losing them. Now, I don't mean death, that's obvious. I just mean to life's busyness. We, we lose them. They grow up and they're gone. And that, that we fear that. You know, statistically... One of the highest anxiety-producing moments for parents is when we send our little ones off to school on their first day. More often than not, it's the parents who are in a mess and not the children. And that's just the first day of year 12. You know? Imagine that. Mom! Mom! Stop it! Um, or Dad. I don't know. If, um, if we're honest, uh, we fear being poor, running out of money, and so we place our security in wealth and prosperity. Or we fear for our marriage. Or perhaps we fear that we'll never marry, so we'll settle for a non-believer. Uh, or we fear just getting sick. If we're getting a bit long in the tooth, as they say, we just fear getting sick. And I could go on, couldn't I? There's some of our fears. As we open up, again, the book of Revelation... Today our focus is on chapters 4 and 5. We remember that, that Christians living at this time, at the time that John wrote this letter, and really for the next 300 years during the Roman Empire, uh, Christians feared for their lives. They feared for their, their lives, not just a beating, 
not just being outcasts. They feared for their lives. And in fact, many today, Christians today, fear for their lives. Uh, Christians in northern Nigeria, if you've been following that, uh, in, in different parts of Nepal and in North Korea, they fear for their lives. Why? The same reason as, as in, the, in, the, in the first century, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The reason why John is on the island of Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, by this time in the first century, these churches that John writes to, remember, Revelation is, a, a, is visions, a couple visions. Uh, it's a letter and it's a book. So John writes to these seven churches, but by the, by the end of the first century, or during the, towards the end of the first century, I really should say, Paul's letters and copies of Paul's letters were already circulating. So they knew to expect persecution because Paul wrote about that. Uh, for example, his words to the young Timothy in the church of, or church planting in the church of Ephesus, not far from where these churches uh, are situated. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So they knew to expect it. And then they, remember, they also remember Jesus' teaching about taking up your cross and, and following him. But they were still scared. Even though they knew these things, they were still scared. And I suspect on top of that, they had much the same fears as we do. You might not fear for your life for following Jesus. Um, we're very fortunate in that way. But they had much the same fears as we do. Family, money, sickness, all those sort of things. So what then do we do with our fears? What do we do with them? What did they need to know as followers of Jesus at the end of the first century? What do we need to know as followers of Jesus in the 21st century as we struggle with fear and worry? I think that's the theme of Revelation 4 and 5. In these two chapters, the start of John's second vision, we're given a picture, and it's not so much of heaven, but of reality. It's of how things really are. That's the picture we're given. Chapters 4 and 5 describe the entire universe from the aspect of heaven. And there's good reason for this picture at this point in the letter. You see, chapters 4 and 5 are really a picture of peace, assurance and comfort for followers of Jesus. See, we've got to remember that Revelation is a highly structured book. It's put together in a very structured way, uh, as I said, for good reason. Because from chapter 6 onwards, these seven churches and us today will read in uh, beautiful symbolism of the trials and sufferings that the church must experience here on earth as we wait for Jesus to return. And so this is what they need to know. What we read in verses, uh, chapters 4 and 5 is what we need to know as we grapple with our fears as we, as we think about trials, we face trials and, and so on. So what picture do we need to see, do we need to see in our minds as we wrestle with our fears? Well, we're going to have to use our imaginations a bit. Uh, when John wrote this letter to the seven churches, he didn't include diagrams, which would have been fun if he did, wouldn't it? Um, but sadly he didn't. And uh, for, for a while during the week I was thinking, maybe I should get the whiteboard out and draw a diagram. And if you've seen my artistic work, you'd probably thank me for that. Um, I'm not going to do that. So we've got to use our minds a little bit and try to picture what's going on. If it helps, think about the father in the centre and then concentric circles around. Try that. 
that might help to get you, get you thinking. Anyway, let's have a look. So what we're going to do, you can see in your outline there, you've got four, uh, four headings and um, these will help us paint this picture in our mind as we work through the text. The vision of the throne, the elders and the living creatures, the sealed scroll taken by the lamb and then worthy is the lamb. So let's look at this point number one in our outline, uh, verses one to six, the, the vision of the throne. Once again, a voice, like a trumpet blast, loud, uh, speaks and invites John into the presence of God. Now, by this time, uh, but this time it's to show him what must soon take place after this, in this verse one. That is the future. From this point on, this vision is about from this point on, okay? Now, we're not told again, we're not told really what in the spirit means in verse two. Perhaps it's simply that John knows what was given to him, this vision, was given to him by God. Perhaps that's just simply what it means. John sees a throne. Well, who sits on thrones? A king sits on thrones, don't they? That's where a king rules. No description is given to the one on the throne. No physical description of God the Father is ever given, except for reverence and awe. That's the picture, isn't it? Now, I think we've sort of lost the true understanding of awe, haven't we? Um, someone scores a goal in, in soccer and they say it's awesome. They just kicked a ball. That's all they did. It's just they kicked a ball. It's not awesome. They kicked a ball. Um, someone might say that movie was awesome. Well, they're actors, you know, and there's lots going on behind the scenes. It's not really awesome. It's just a, it's just a movie. Someone might say, that was an awesome curry. Well, you'd probably make it at home if you could, you know, be bothered. It's not really awesome, is it? Uh, when I was in the States recently, um, pretty much everything was awesome. Everything was awesome. Like, so I said to someone, as we left, I said, I, I, we went to um, Wes and I, who I travelled with, my, my oldest, so we went to um, In-N-Out Burger. In-N-Out Burger is like a Macca's chain. You know, it's, it's, it, was, it was pretty good. So I said to them, oh, we went to In-N-Out Burger. And what did they say, of course? Oh, Awesome. It's a burger joint. It's not awesome. That's not awesome. So let's not, try, let's not lose the awesomeness of this scene as we picture it. Try not to. Uh, try to get those descriptions out of your head and, and think of awesome, the awesomeness of God. It's a picture of the magisterial presence of God in chapter 4 here. So God the Father, the, the and, and the green-coloured uh, precious stone of jasper and the red of carnelian, it, it, that's the, it's an awesome scene. Around the throne was a rainbow, and a reminder of God's faithfulness to his promises. His promises to his people will never fail. And that's good to hear, isn't it, when you're scared and when you worry. In a circle facing the throne were 24 thrones with 24 elders seated on them. Remember that the symbols, symbolising, I should say, the people of God from the Old, from the Old Testament, the New Testament. So, twelve apostles, uh, the, the symbolising the people of God, the New Testament, the twelve tribes of Israel, symbolising the people of God in the Old Testament. So, here's the twenty-four, twenty-four elders, twenty-four thrones, and they sit on thrones dressed in white, and they with crowns of gold, a royal colour on their heads. So, here's God's people, forgiven. And now reigning victorious, sitting on thrones, despite enormous opposition that they currently face, this is what the people of God are reading and hearing. That's the reality, you see? And from the throne, images of judgment too, lightning and thunder, 
Christians must not only remember the rainbow of God's covenant mercy, but they must not forget God's judgment. God who sits on the throne and rules really. Before the throne shone seven lamps, the seven spirits of God, we're told. That is divine perfection. The spirit that works in the lives of us, the spirit that brings us together today, the spirit that bonds us together today, the spirit that turns people from rebellious uh, uh, rebels against God to, to loving and serving him. That's the spirit we're talking about here. And verse 6, before the throne, was what looked like a, a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Now, just picture for a minute, if you like, your favourite river or, or lake without a breath of wind. The reflections, you just want to get a little stone, don't you, and skim it across the top. That's what I do when I see that. That's what it is, a sea of glass, clear, clear as crystal. Now, elsewhere in Revelation, we read that the, that the sea symbolises a place of conflict and evil and death. But now that has passed. Now all is still before God, before God the Father. Uh, the victory has been won. Death has been defeated. How are you going with your picture? It's not easy, is it? <laughs> Try to imagine what's going on. The sea of glass is easy, I suppose. The rainbow, the, the colours, uh, the 24 elders encircling the throne with, the, with the God's people sitting there. Well, in the centre, uh, around the throne, so we're looking, um, we're looking here at point two, the elders and the living creatures. In the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures. Now, some commentators argue that these living creatures are angels, uh, like the, the cherubim that guarded the holy things of God, uh, the, the Garden of Eden, for example. I'm not so convinced uh, on that one. Not really sure. I think really these four creatures symbolised the noblest, the strongest, the wisest, the swiftest living beings created by God. Uh, the noblest, the lion, the strongest, the ox, the wisest, that's humans, the swiftest, uh, that's the eagle. The things created by God, that's what's being symbolised here. But in the end, what matters is what they say and what they do. They symbolise creation in one, one sense, the best parts of creation, you could say, but it's what they say and what they do that matters, and we'll get to that in a minute. Their many eyes speak of their insight into reality and the future. And you can see in verse 8, and, and they, know, they know what humanity doesn't know. Uh, they know what humanity, with all its knowledge and technology and connections, all our Facebook and all our Instagrams and all, our, all the ways we can, all the technology that we have today, these creatures know what humans need to know and ought to know. And that is that the Lord God Almighty is the one who was and is and is to come. They know reality. They know it. That God is the God of, the Lord of history. He's the sovereign one who rules really. And so in their insight, well, they never stop declaring God's holiness, that un uncompromising purity and the goodness of the Lord Almighty. That's who they worship. Not the emperor. Not Domitian. Not the American president. Not the prime minister. Not celebrities. Not your husband or your wife. Uh, he is God. God, the ruler of history, the one who was and is and is to come. 
You know, a common um, literary practice in Revelation, it's how John puts together his letter, especially in the songs and hymns, and the NIV translation does a good job for us. It, it sort of re-paragraphs, if that's a word, um, these words that were in songs, and they look a bit different on the page. But in these songs and hymns, we get what, what I guess people call it a two-beat rhythm. I'd call it a call and response. So picture for a minute your, your favourite, I don't know, your favourite uh, singer, maybe a rock singer or something like that, and he, and he sings and points with his band behind him in his big, big uh, crowd in front, and he's got his microphone, and he says something, and then he puts his microphone like that. You've seen that before? So the same here, singing away, puts his microphone, and the crowd sings back. The crowd might sing the same thing back to him, or they might sing a different thing back to him. That's what's going on. It's going on in heaven. It's a bit bigger, a bit better. So verse 9 to 11 are a little bit like that. So look at verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down and worship him who sits on the throne. Again, John saying, not the emperor, this is the one we worship. And they, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns. So they acknowledge that God alone is king. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Notice what it is to worship. Remember a few weeks back we looked at these spiritual constants and one of the things we looked at, surprised a few of you, was singing, particularly congregational singing. We talked a bit about worship. Well, here's another example of what worship is. Uh, they acknowledge God for who he is and what he's done. Look, look again at verses 9 to 11. They acknowledge that he is Lord and God who created all things, who he is and what he's done. That's what worship is. All things have their being because of him, which means he's worthy to receive glory and honour and power. We're nothing without God. He's given us our life. He sustains us. He keeps the earth going. And that's why he's to receive glory and honour and power. You see that? In chapter 5, verse 1, we come to a bit of a critical point in John's vision. In the right hand of the enthroned one is a scroll written on both sides. Lots on it, in other words. But what is this scroll? What is this? And, and, and what, what does it say? What's in it? Now, the concept of a heavenly book uh, containing the future course of history is not uncommon as we read through our Bibles. So if you want to do some homework, go and read Ezekiel chapter 2. There's a good example there. And Psalm 139 verse 16, there's an example there. of, of uh, And some commentators might be, say it might be the book of life that's mentioned later on in, uh, in Revelation. We'll come to that in, in, towards the end of Revelation. What we read in Revelation 5 follows that theme. And it's sealed with seven seals. God's seal, seven, remember? It's unbreakable, in other words. And so only a special person, God, can open this scroll. Whoever knows its secrets knows the hidden mind of God. And so whoever opens the seals becomes the agent by which hidden, the hidden plans of God are executed or are revealed. So a mighty angel bellows. Who is worthy then to open the scroll? Bellows around. 
But no one steps forward. No one. No one can do it. And so John weeps. He despairs. I wonder if you've ever been there. Perhaps you're with John right now. How do I make sense of all this? How do I make sense of life? How do I understand and come to grips with the future and the pain I'm dealing with right now? Life and death. How do I cope with my fears? How do I do that? Is there anyone who can help? Not just help, I don't want help, I want answers. Is there anyone who can give me answers? What hope is there? Ever been there? Let's keep reading. Verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Of course, that's the, the, the Old Testament language for the Messiah, Christ King. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. Notice the completed action, again, of God's king, the Christ. He has triumphed. Remember, the, ba- the great battle of God is not in the future, but in the past. And that has been fought and won. The answers to the future lie in the past. But as John turns and looks, he doesn't see a lion. What does he see? See there? He sees a lamb. Very different, isn't it? A lamb who looked like it's slain. A lamb who is slain. Of course, the crucified Jesus. He's standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the living creatures and the elders. And he has seven horns. Horns, power. God's power. Seven. Seven eyes. The lamb with seven eyes. Pretty ugly lamb, by the way, but anyway. Um, God's wisdom. He's the resurrected Jesus, the living Jesus. He is worthy to open the scroll and unlock the seals. Do not weep. Do not despair. And so in verse 7, chapter 5, he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. It's interesting, isn't it, Um, when we humans want symbols of power, we think of the mighty beasts and birds of prey. So Russia elevates the bear, uh, Britain the lion, US the eagle. All of them are predators. But in the kingdom of God, God's symbol of might and power is a lamb. Remember 1 Corinthians 1.18? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Well, the moment the Lamb took the scroll, the four living creatures and the elders fell down and worshipped. In verse 9, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why is Jesus worthy? Why is he worthy to do this job? Why is Jesus the answer to our tears, to our fears? Why Jesus? There's lots of others. Why not the emperor Domitian? Why not a celebrity? Why not my husband or wife? Why Jesus? 
Well, keep reading. Halfway through verse 9. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men and women for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. They no longer belong to the losing side, the side of Satan. He's defeated. Sin and death are defeated. Those who belong to Jesus, purchased by the blood of Jesus, reign victorious. We're forgiven, set free to serve our great God. But in a classic, but wait, there's more moment, look at verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. That is a lot. <laughs> That's what it's a lot, it's a lot. Don't get tied up in numbers like that. It just, it's a lot. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Why do they gather together? Why, why this picture of so many? It's an overwhelming picture. To acknowledge from the heart that God is good and loving and true, that through his Son he saves people from the power of sin and evil and destruction. That's why they gather together. That's why they, they, there's so many of them. It's an overwhelming picture. In verse 13, Then I heard every creature, every cre everyone, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. What a, what a great picture. I hope you're seeing it. Here's God's throne. God on his throne ruling. Jesus ruling. The Lamb died for you and I, reigning. What do we need to hear when we face trials and troubles, when we fear? What do we need to see? This is what we need to see. So take comfort. Be assured, God says to his people, and do not fear. It's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> it's pretty good. Been reading through the Psalms a little bit. And uh, I do like Psalm 61. And I think it fits here a little bit as well. When uh, the psalmist prays, when fears arise, when anxiety rears its ugly head, when our hearts grow faint, he prays that God would lead him to the rock that is higher than I. I'm going to play a song at the end of the service today. Um, uh, and it's a great song from Psalm 61. The rock that is higher than I is, of course, the king who reigns. Let me close with this, and then we'll have a moment or two for questions and comments. Uh, why don't we pray this? Let's pray. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and to take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Amen.